You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, the year was 1941. And the place was Auschwitz, Poland. A man named Frankicek Gawajicek was deeply and profoundly sobbing. He was weeping on his knees and it was freezing. Another inmate from Auschwitz, the death camp, the concentration camp of the Nazi regime, another inmate had escaped and ran off into the woods. And the Nazis were completely clear as a deterrent for escape. Anytime an inmate managed to escape, they would take 10 other inmates and they would simply lock them in a freezing room and just allow them to stay in that room in filth and squalor and starve to death. And the 10 inmates would simply be chosen at random to be thrown in this locked room. And as the names were being read, the name was read and Frankicek heard his name called out. And he clumped forward and he wept and he sobbed. But it was not for his own death. Because he knew, having been in Auschwitz for a long time, that that was inevitable. Death was coming. It was inescapable. No, he wept because he knew that if and when he died, his family would be destroyed. And so as he wept, he managed only one sentence. My wife and my children. And I can't imagine but there was a Franciscan priest named Kobel who was nearby and he saw this take place. He heard the sentence and he stepped forward and he spoke directly to the commandant of the camp and he said, I will go in his place. And the commandant cared not because these were chattel, were meaningless lives. So the commandant accepted and the priest was dragged away and Frankicek wrote much later that he watched in horror as the priest was taken to his death. Well, Frankicek survived Auschwitz as did his family miraculously. And Frankicek actually installed a plaque in his front yard there in Poland as a commemoration of what this man had done by dying in his place and every year on that date. Frankicek and his whole family would go to Auschwitz, broken, remembering what this one had done for him to die in his place, to save him and save his family. Frankicek himself, a living, walking around memorial to substitution. Substitution is what we're going to talk about this morning. We are in the Gospel of John. We're going to round out chapter 11 this morning. This morning, we're going to learn a lot about who our God is, what our God has done, and what the Son of God has done to die in our place. We're going to learn that our God is not some cold, callous, indifferent commandant, but he's actually so good that he has done what he did. And so what we're going to learn through the second half, or this last portion of John chapter 11, is that Christ's death was God's design. That's our big idea for the morning. That's what I want to sit in your soul and rattle around in your mind for the rest of our time this morning and hopefully for the rest of this week, hopefully for the rest of your life. Christ's death was God's design. Now we are in chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, 
1 through 11 is John's great grand apologetic, his defense, his, his declaration and his setting up of the argument and the proof that Jesus of Nazareth really is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And for 11 chapters, he's been setting that up and defending it. There's a lot of time that takes place in Jesus's earthly ministry, about three years. We've already made it to the end of chapter 11. There's several months that take place between chapter 10 and chapter 11. The other three gospel writers take a lot of time to narratively describe and explain all of that. That's not John's intent. John's gospel is written so that you will believe. And so he organizes all of his content simply as an attempt to help the spirit along as you go on your journey of faith so that you will believe. Now, John writes 11 chapters as a defense, as a declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Chapter 12 next week, Lord willing, is this very special, remarkable hinge chapter that demonstrates what belief looks like. And then chapters 13 through 17, five chapters we're going to get with an intimate conversation with Jesus and his disciples, which will take us then to the Easter narrative. This morning we're in John chapter 11. I'm gonna begin reading in verse 45. We'll cover the end of the chapter and then we'll come back and we'll unpack it a little bit. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, let me, let me catch this up super quickly in case you were not here last week. John chapter 11, verses 1 to 44, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was dead. He was dead, dead. And Jesus raises him to walk in newness of life. Therefore, verse 45, many of the Jews, this is in Bethany, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did, believed in him. This is the thrust and the theme of the gospel of John. They've heard his words, they've seen what he did, and they believed. These are mourners and villagers of Bethany. These are friends who have come to support Mary and Martha in the death of their, son, of their brother Lazarus. And they have seen this Jesus who reportedly, miraculously transformed water into wine, obliterating the divide of, of religion, converting it into the, the, the fluid of fellowship, if you will. They've, they've heard the stories about how he cleansed the temple and he says, I am the temple. I am the place now where God communes and connects with man. It's me. They've heard the stories that he walked on water and calmed a storm, that he fed thousands and thousands of people with some loaves and fishes. They've heard the stories that he healed a lame man, that he healed a blind man, that there was some guy that said, please come and heal my child. And Jesus from a distance goes, something, and the kid is healed. They've heard all of these things about Jesus. Not only that, everything he's ever said has confirmed and been confirmed that he speaks on behalf of God as God. And yet they've gathered together and they see this Jesus approach the tomb of a man dead for days and simply speak two words and the dead dude comes forth. <laughs> and so some of them believed. They put all of their weight, all of their being, all of their person solely and squarely on Jesus. And they said, you are our only hope. If I'm ever going to have relationship and right standing with God, it's got to be through you. I don't know how that's gonna happen. I don't understand everything, but 
this is a tip off. When you speak two words and dead dudes get up, I think I'm in on that deal. And so some of them believe. It's very good news. It's the thrust of John's gospel. Verse 46, but are you kidding me? Why is this word in the text? Like there's no way. How can it? No, seriously? Guy walks on water, calms storm, heals blind people, heals lame people, feeds thousands, turns water into wine, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm looking for a little something extra. Hmm. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. In the Greek, it says, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. <laughs> there are still some people who are going, gosh, I, you're, you're pretty amazing. You've done a pretty great thing, but it's not enough for me. It's not what I'm looking for. Those are not my expectations. What I'm looking for is a champion, a hero, a stud who agrees with me, who affirms my position, and who will get done what I can't do on my own. That's the kind of Messiah I'm looking for. Just to carry my agenda across the line, because I can't quite get there. I just need a little boost. I just need a little nudge. And unfortunately, that kind of Savior does not exist, because that's not who God is, nor what he does. These people do not believe they still are demonstrating where their faith is. They've placed their hope in favor and in influence. And so they run to tell the Pharisees, those whose native tongue and trade is favor and influence. They run to the governing authorities to say, let me tell you what I know. Let me tell you what I know. It feels so good to know something that nobody else knows yet, doesn't it? And when you say it, you feel like you have value and worth until you say it, then you realize, I'm actually living a vapid, worthless existence. Maybe that's just me. They run to the governing authorities to tell them. Why? Because they still believe that these governing authorities are the hope for their lives. Never mind the fact that the Pharisees have never once ever been able to walk them, nor lead them, nor guide them, nor guard them into anything eternal whatsoever. Ever. All they've ever been able to do is impose restriction and burden and oppressive law. And yet... Those guys seem to have it all together. Those guys have prominence. Those guys have notoriety. Those guys have power. Let me go and tell them what is going on. So let me just give you a little, a sermon and a sermon. They are still expecting the government to be their hope. And if you find yourself in 2019 in those same sentiments, where you still expect the government to be your hope, and then you get red-faced, white-hot, mad when it's not, then reset your expectations. Oh, I get it. I know Romans 13. Believe me that God is sovereign and he has installed every governing position in the cosmos. I get that. But if you expect for a moment for worldly governments to uphold the kingdom of Jesus, understand this, they never will. And so save your social media blatherings, please. Worldly governments are always going to behave like worldly governments. There is not a single government program ever in the history of humanity that can lead a single soul into right standing before the creator of the universe. Not one. And so if that's still your expectation that we're going to get it back to... Whoa! It's never been the case. 
We are citizens of heaven. Your passport is gold, and we eagerly await our Savior from there. Never, ever forget that. All right, moving on now, finally. Verse 47, I feel better. So, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered. (laughs) All right, so listen, it's 2019. We're in East Texas. We're a little bit removed from what John just said here. But this is astonishing scandal, what he just said. The Pharisees and the chief priests. Let me, let me kind of break this down. The Pharisees are the super ultra conservative, right winged, fighting fundamentalists of Israel. They hold the line and they say to all of Israel, oh no, we're bringing Israel back to God. We're not going to let the Greek culture come in and change us. By God, no. We're not going to let it happen. They're making Israel great again. That didn't get nearly as much chuckle as it should have. Hmm. These guys take the fun out and put the mental in fundamentalism. Do you see? This is what they're all about. And they do not get along at all with the opposing party. That aisle is very wide indeed. The opposing party are the Sadducees. The Sadducees, well, they're more liberal. In fact, they're a lot more liberal. These guys, like, you know, they eat avocado toast, they wear hemp, they listen to John Denver. It's kind of, no, no, I'm kidding, not really. No, 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 not like that. These guys don't really believe at all in the resurrection or the spirit realm. They don't think there are angels. They don't believe in all kinds of stuff. So all of this talk of Jesus and his miracles and his signs and his wonders and, oh, come on, oh, come on. It's getting kind of old. There's an explanation for everything. They're worldly and they're secular. The Sadducees are always the party of the high priest. Pharisees are never a high priest. It's always a Sadducee. And the Sadducees are allowed to be sort of the ruling class, even though the fight and fundy Pharisees are the ones that are always sort of active in doing things. The Sadducees really don't mind Roman occupation all that much because they still are able to maintain power. So they don't really mind it all that much. And yet, the Pharisees and the chief priests, a common common enemy unites rivals. The Sadducees and the Pharisees actually hate one another. They're opposed culturally, politically, even religiously. But then there's this Jesus guy, the great unifier, but not in a good way this time. The Pharisees and the chief priests reach around the aisle. They come together and they say, we've got to work together to stamp out our common foe. It's remarkable. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. Now, we don't know for sure that this is the full 71-member Sanhedrin, that is the Senate of Israel. It most likely and probably is, John doesn't say that, but this is probably what he means. What's going on? Well, the Sanhedrin is the Senate of Israel, it's 71 people. On this side, you got 35 people, mostly Pharisees. On this side, you got 35 people, mostly Sadducees. And then right in the center is the high priest. He's the 71st. So this is a big enough deal that when these runners come from Bethany, two miles to the east, they run west, up over the Mount of Olives, down the Kidron Valley, up Temple Mount. They find the Pharisees. The Pharisees go, hey, chief priests, I can't stand the sight of you. I don't even want to walk in your shadow, but we got a problem. Chief priests say, yes, we do. Let's gather the council. And bam, we got 71 guys probably coming together over this Jesus. Isn't that indicative of how big a deal this thing is. So they've got 71 people more than likely gathered together in verse 47. 
And the council said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Like nobody can argue, nobody can debate, nobody can deny this guy's doing some pretty incredible things. I mean, the lame guy from chapter five, he's still out in the parking lot doing calisthenics. Like, will somebody please bludgeon that guy and make him stop? Nobody can deny he was lame, 38 years at least, and now he's walking around. The blind guy, we all know the blind guy, blind Billy. Now he's seeing things, ugh. Nobody can deny that these things are happening. We've got to do something. So right there, that provides the framework. This conversation, this gathering is going to have nothing to do with truth. It's got nothing to do with truth. He's doing a thing. Nobody can deny that. It's that we don't like it. Verse 47. Verse 48. I don't know if you're the kind of person that does this. If you're not, become the kind of person that does this. Verse 48 of John chapter 11 is one of the most important verses I will contend in your Bible. It's all important. I'm saying practically applicable to your life. It is one of the shining beacons of biblical anthropology, meaning this is a passage that tells us who we are as a species. Verse 48, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him. <laughs> oh no. We can't have that now, can we? I mean, listen, guy's raising people from the dead. He's feeding bunches of people. He's, he's doing all these things. If we let him go on, people are gonna start to believe in him. Mm -hmm. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And there it is. They just declared their fear. They just declared their faith. If we let him go on like this, the Romans will come. They'll take away our place and our nation. We're afraid of losing this thing because what we have placed all of our weight on, our whole person, our whole being, is our place and our nation. And if we let him keep going on like this, we're gonna lose this. This is the thing we trust in. I want you to follow the logic here. This is the thing that I trust in. And if we let this one guy continue, we're going to lose it. Which begs the question, if the thing that you have put your eternal security in can be wiped out in an afternoon by a Roman garrison, maybe you want to rethink your thinking there. Hmm? But they've just declared, this is the thing that we trust in most. If I lose this, I'm wrecked. If I lose that, my life is over. The Old Testament refers to that as idolatry. If I lose that, I'm done. I, I don't know what that is for you. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your reputation, your prestige. Maybe it's your looks. Maybe it's your finances, your wealth. I don't know. But anything that you're thinking, oh gosh, if I lose that, then, well, surprise, you will. You can. It's only a matter of time. So these guys declare at least honestly their fear and their faith. And then this just gets amazing. But one of them, Caiaphas. <laughs> let me just, let me just say, I, I have coached, I can't tell you how many kids sports teams, soccer, football, basketball, I've coached, I've spent a lot of time in different schools throughout my life. I have never once ever encountered a little kid named Caiaphas. Hey, look, what's Kai short for? Caiaphas? Really? Hey, never, never. I've heard some strange names. I've never once ever heard a Caiaphas. You know why? Because he's a very bad guy. 
you will never see Caiaphas hosting tea parties. Caiaphas always seems to have the demeanor of like, I don't know, like a sunburned badger. He's just mad, he's mean, he's crafty, he's all hair and teeth. He's a very bad person, this Caiaphas guy, all right? One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. That's a weird expression. He was high priest that year. What, what are you talking about? Everyone knows in the Old Testament, the high priest is the high priest for life. He becomes the high priest because he's next in line in the Aaronic priesthood, and he's the high priest forever until he's dead. Hmm. Except that the Romans had come in and said, we don't like the idea of any one guy getting too comfy, too cozy, garnering too much influence, and so periodically, if we start to sniff that there's a ruckus, we'll just remove that high priest and we'll appoint one of our choosing which had happened, which was why Caiaphas was in position. The last high priest allowed some things to bubble up a little bit and Caiaphas rallied and he campaigned and he bribed and he got the Romans to appoint him as the high priest. Caiaphas liked being the high priest. He was not about to let anything happen so that the Romans would go, I'm smelling some problems here. I think it's time for him to go. He was not about to let that happen because then Caiaphas would have to get a... a a job. <laughs> Look at these hands. I can't work. Caiaphas didn't want to do that. He liked his power. He liked his prestige. He liked his position. Just fine. Thank you very much. And so Caiaphas has the most to lose. One of them, Caiaphas, verse 49, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Okay, that's a sweet sort of... Mm, sterilized translation. He essentially says, you're all idiots. The dude just called the 70 senators, if you will, the, the leaders of Israel, you're all idiots. I don't even know why we're talking about this. This is a waste of time. Verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas, I want you to pay very close attention. Caiaphas says a thing because he means a thing. John chapter 11, verses 50 and 51, you can circle because they are the center, the core, and the crux of our entire construct of faith. It is the center of our religious confession is what is said in John chapter 11, verses 50 and 51. Caiaphas says a thing because Caiaphas means a thing. Caiaphas says, this is not about truth. This is about pragmatics. It's not even a question of law anymore. It's simple, practical truth. This guy has to die or they'll kill us all may be unpalatable to you idiots, he essentially says, but look, it's simple pragmatics. Either we kill Jesus or the Romans kill us. Why are we even talking about this? It's obvious. Sadducees were known for being blunt and rather harsh and abrasive. Well, here you go. Why are we even talking about this? Either we kill him or they kill us. Next question. But then John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does something amazing. Verse 51, John says, 
Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, John wants us to understand that this is a temporary deal. It wasn't ever supposed to be temporary. It is now. But being high priest that year, he prophesied. Prophesy, you owe. It's a Greek word and it means prophesied. And that means something very specific, that Jesus would die for the nation. John eleven fifty one blows my mind. Caiaphas said a thing because he meant a thing. But John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, no, 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 no. God also said a thing because God meant a thing. Oh, Caiaphas spoke the words and they were superintended by God. Those were God's words. How do I know that? Because John says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Caiaphas prophesied. That literally means to speak God's words. So let's compare what one sentence was spoken, but that two different people meant two different things. Caiaphas said, we kill Jesus or the Romans kill us. God said, I kill Jesus or I kill you. God in heaven said, either I put my son to death or I have to put all of you to death. Caiaphas said, we kill Jesus or the Romans kill us. God says, no, no, I got a bigger, better, more unbelievably gracious, glorious idea. I put my own son to death or I have to put all of you to death. Oh my God. Quite literally. Can you believe that God did this? I don't know what you think about when you think about God, but think thus. He's not some cold-hearted, calloused commandant in a death camp that says, yeah, whatever. No, no, no. He brings his own son to come and die in the place. Because if he doesn't do that, he's got to kill everybody. And you might not like that word, kill. Ugh, kills, blah, bad connotation. It sounds, right. Read Isaiah 54 through 56, where it says that God was pleased to crush his son. He was smitten, smitten's nice King James word, killed for us. Caiaphas says, we kill him or they kill us. God says, I kill him or I kill all of you. Which is why I have titled this message, why this is the core of our entire confession, substitution. Substitution. I hear so many times Christians get into debates and they try to, well, the, the Roman road says this and the four spiritual laws and, and they did, but that, that. listen, what do you believe? What is the basis of your faith? Just say, Substitution because there's no other religion in the cosmos that has this notion, this idea, this sense that a God would suffer and die for the sake of people who deserve to suffer and die. Substitution, it's the title of our message, it's the core and the crux of all Christianity. Substitution, an innocent dies for the guilty. It's not fair. Well, moving on. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. By the way, that's ethnos. That's Israel in particular. So yes, God still has a plan for Israel. That's another sermon for another time. And not for the nation only, verse 52, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. <gasps> Caiaphas 
prophesied and he said a thing and he meant a thing. He didn't say this part. John says, oh, God said a thing because he meant a thing and not only for the nation Israel, oh, that's a thing, but also for all of these other people all over the world through space and time, which is exactly what Jesus had said in John chapter 10. There are other sheep from another fold and I must go to gather them as well. That's right. God speaks and what he means is that Jesus is to gather into himself all of you Gentiles. Wow. Verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They've crossed the Rubicon. Formally, officially, legally, governmentally, and nationally, the nation Israel agrees to kill Jesus. They have formally rejected their king. Verse 54, Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews. Probably a good idea. When an entire nation says, we want to kill you, you go, I'm starting to feel unwelcome. That's getting clearer. But he went from there to the region near the wilderness. Jesus as he has always been, as he is at this moment, and as he has, will be for all eternity, is still in complete control. It is not yet his time, although it's drawing close. It's getting closer and closer. He goes about 15 miles north of Bethany to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now many think, and I happen to agree, that when Jesus goes away and waits, he goes to Ephraim. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a Hebrew word. It means fruitful. And the way that John writes this, he goes there and he stays with his disciples. That while we wait for Jesus to enter Jerusalem, the disciples are to be fruitful. I think this is a foretaste of what is to come, that the disciples of Jesus are to be fruitful until he re-enters Jerusalem. And when he does that time, well, we'll, we'll have to get there and we'll see. Verse 55, the suspense and the tension is going to build. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. It's the great grand ingathering of the Jews into Jerusalem. Now remember when we started our passage in verse 45, some of them who were there, some of the Jews who were there, they believed. I want you to get this sort of timeline in your mind. It's sometimes hard to, to reconcile all of the things that are happening, but this event, Lazarus' raising from the dead, means Jesus is only a couple weeks from his own death. The book of Acts is only a couple months off from this point right here. And so as the Passover is coming together, some of those believing Jews are also going to be in Jerusalem at this time. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? Is he gonna come? Is Jesus gonna show his face? What's gonna happen? How is this all going to go down? Verse 57, here's the formal decree, federally from the nation. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees, let's not forget they have reached across the aisle in partnership and collusion together, had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him formal declaration that he's going to be arrested and that he will die. So what are we supposed to make of all of this passage? I want to remind us of our big idea that Christ's death was God's design. Not an accident. Christ's death was God's design. 
All that is the doctrine of substitution. Let me just give three very quick summary concluding principles. Number one goes like this. The two great enemies of the faith are status and control. We see it right there in John eleven forty eight. 48. The two great enemies of faith in Christ are status and control. By the way, it's been said many, many, many times, but both of those things are a complete illusion. When you begin to think you have status and control, surprise, you don't. They are a complete illusion. They are the two things that Satan himself was grasping for as described in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 when God himself says, we're done here, and flicks him off the mountain of God. Isaiah says that Satan said on the mountain, I will have, I will have. What did he want? He wanted status. He wanted control. Well, ironically, the Jews say, if we let him go on like this, we're going to lose our status and control. <laughs> well, in 40 years time, they would utterly lose all of their status and all of their control. They would sniff insurrection with the Roman Empire. Rome would actually tolerate a whole bunch of things because their empire was so vast and spread out over such an immense area. But the one thing they would not tolerate for a nanosecond was the sniff of insurrection or rebellion. That they would squash immediately. And sure enough, in AD 70, Rome comes through, raises the temple of God to the ground and obliterates the nation of Israel. And they have never been the same since. They've not had sacrifice in the temple since AD 70. All of their status all of their control completely gone. And so I want to say it again. If your greatest hope for now and all eternity can be wiped out in an afternoon by a Roman garrison, perhaps it's time for you to reevaluate who you want to have actual status and control over your life. But, but then the gospel comes around. The gospel says, oh, wait a second, I get it. What you want is status and control. Then try this on for size. How about by grace, I give you the right and the title of firstborn son of God most high. How about that for status? No, 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 no. You can't earn it. I'm just going to give it to you. Not only that, I'm going to give you the liberty and the freedom to perfectly and exquisitely execute the will of God perfectly and precisely for all eternity. How about that for control? because that's what the gospel does. Or, or, or you can try to manufacture your own status and control and wait for the marching of Roman boots. Now we hear that and we think that's madness. Who would do such a silly thing? I call that Mondays. Number two, God is sovereign. He is never surprised. Now, the things that I'm saying are not going to catch us off guard, but I want you to hear how this text is trumpeting this truth. God is sovereign. He is never surprised. I think so many times in our lives, we get into a tough situation, a challenging circumstance, and we think, oh, no, how, how, how is God going to solve this and turn this thing around? You know, I'm supposed to say, because I'm a Christian, for his glory and for my good, how's God going to fix this one? Like he's Matlock about to win some case at the end. That's how we think of God, because I don't know what you think about when you think about God, but you might think of Andy Griffith in a light blue suit, and that's not God. It's not him. It's not how he operates. That has never happened to God. He has never been surprised by anything. We say all the time, God exists and sees and lives in the eternal now. He is superintending everything. Caiaphas said a thing, God superintended a thing. Even the things that are hard and that we don't understand. Please understand, it's not like Caiaphas said, it is better for one man die for the nation than all the nation die. And God went, whoa, 
Oh, oh, Michael, get in here. Do you know what Caiaphas just said? We gotta fix this. Okay, here's what I'm gonna do. Uh, uh, I gotta turn this thing around somehow. No, no. God has been superintending even the hard and harming things. He has been in it from eternity past. God does not merely turn hard things. He is in the hard things. And a Christian who disciplines him or herself to meditate daily on that reality will have a peace that passes understanding that is unmeasurable by a fallen, dying world. Oh, this is hard. Oh, oh, but God is in this deal. Woohoo! Not to be cavalier and glib. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, but to think rightly, to feel rightly about who God is, what he is doing. He is deeply and personally involved in your life. Not going, oh man, he stepped in at that time. I got to see if I can rescue this thing from the clutches of death. No, 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 no. He is in it. Third point, <laughs> Jesus gets what he paid for. I mean, here's the old expression, you get what you paid for? No, not really, but Jesus does. Jesus gets what he paid for. He bought by his blood a people for all eternity. My salvation, my conversion, my regeneration is not so that I can get what I want that makes me comfortable. <laughs> I didn't shed blood for anybody. And if I had, it wouldn't have done any good because I'm a dirt bag. But Jesus gets what he paid for. He bought and paid for a people that will forever populate his eternal kingdom. And those people will look all sorts of different ways. They'll have different haircuts. They'll worship different ways. They'll eat different foods. They'll speak different languages. They'll have different colors of exterior. And so when you and I begin to feel threatened in our community, in our country, in our church, we go, oh man, those people are getting too close to my comfort zone. Your comfort zone. Your, your comfort zone. You're an Ephraim baby. You're supposed to be fruitful as his disciple until he comes back to the east gate, kicks it open, and changes the world again. Your neighborhood. You are a citizen of heaven and you eagerly await your savior from there. You don't be threatened by people who don't look like you, think like you, vote like you coming too close. You live your life as if Jesus was living his life through you so that the gospel is so gloriously irresistible they are drawn to you like a bug to a zapper. That's who you're supposed to be. That's who I'm supposed to be. And I don't do a very good job of it, but I am convicted that I want to do better. And by God's grace and the indwelling of his spirit and the teaching of his word, I aim to because I know that's God's plan for my life. Jesus will get what he has paid for. There is no question about that. Not what I want him to have. He will have his people. Christ's death was God's design. I want to remind you where we are in the Gospel of John. We've come now through 11 chapters. John's great apologetic, his defense of the deity of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Next week is chapter 12, Lord willing, and I cannot wait. We're going to see very practically what belief looks like. And then we're going to have five chapters of private conversation of Jesus with his disciples in an upper room. We call it the upper room discourse. And then on Good Friday, we will gather together. Huh. We will watch in horror as this Jesus with whom we have fallen more deeply in love because of the writing of John 
We will watch as this one who is healed, who is loved, who is blessed, who is raised to walk, who has never said an errant word nor had an errant sinful thought or deed, he will be dragged from a garden. The innocent to die for the guilty. And we will commemorate. We will celebrate that. I invite you, like John did, to believe it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this word that Christ's death was your design because you're good and you love us more than we'll ever fully recognize or appreciate or even understand. But we cling to the fact that it's true and that it is your truth made available. And so this morning, God, if there's someone here who for the first time realizes, recognizes, they are standing on an idol that it is made of breadsticks and balsa wood. Would you reveal that to them and by grace give them peace? That you are offering the ultimate eternal rock of salvation on which they can stand. Would they believe? Would you lead them by your spirit into a saving knowledge of your son that they would believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God and they would place all of their being, all of their person, all of their weight, all of their everything on that truth. And for the rest of us, Father, who are believers but are also equipped with ears that hear the whispers of our enemy. Would you remind us by this passage that hard things come and you're not surprised, but you are in them and to look for your presence so that we might have your peace. And in so doing, God, would you equip us to live the gospel daily in every context. We pray that you would do exactly as I have asked God or even more because you are gooder than I can imagine. And I pray this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen. Hey, thanks so much for being here this morning and for uh, walking through the first 11 chapters of John with us. I'm going to ask you to stand for a word of benediction, and then we will be dismissed. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you, and may you reflect it. Be fruitful. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.